Hey, it's your uh, internet pal, John Gruber. Trying something different, something new after 226 episodes of this edition of the talk show. Uh, it's just me today, no guest. And uh, it's July 31st. I have uh, two sponsors scheduled for July. Uh, sort of been remiss this month doing regular episodes. Uh, so I'm trying something new. It's just me. And I'm going to talk in your ear here. Uh, and for what to talk about, I tweeted this morning uh, asking for questions. Ask me anything, more or less. And I am overblown. I thought I could do, knock this out in an hour, get all the good questions. One, I like a sort of a short one-hour episode, get through all the questions. Uh, there's no way that that's going to happen. I have just spent the last uh, probably close to four hours sorting through the questions on Twitter. Uh, they're terrific. I've categorized them. Uh, I don't think there's any chance. I, I'd be lucky if I get through half of them. Um, I think it could be really fun. Um, so my thanks to everybody who asked questions. My uh, apologies to everybody whose questions I don't get to. Maybe I'll do another episode like this. But anyway, it's just me answering your questions today on the talk show. And before I do, why don't I knock this out of the way and tell you about uh, Squarespace. Squarespace has been sponsoring this podcast longer than any other sponsor I can think of. There's a bunch of repeat sponsors who I'm sure you're all familiar with, but Squarespace is, is the king. And I thank them for their continuing support. Here's the thing though. I truly believe in Squarespace. I, I really do think that it is the best way, um, for almost anybody to get a website off the ground. And it doesn't matter what type of website you're building. Uh, you, you could host a blog, you could host a podcast, you can put up a store, you can set up a portfolio, and you get so much customization. The main thing I, 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 I hear, oh, you go there, you get templates to choose from, and I start thinking, ah, you're going to get like a cookie cutter site. You use Squarespace sites every day, and you don't even realize it. I do this all the time. The main reason I often find out that somebody's using Squarespace is I see a typeface that they're using, and I select it, and I go into the Safari web inspector and start looking at the source code to see what typeface it is. This just happened to me this week with a company, a uh, great company, local company here in Philly, the Philly Bread Company. You can go to phillybread.com, see their website. They're, they're using, it's obviously uh, some version of Courier, but I, I could sort of suspected it wasn't like the, the, the system version of courier and it definitely isn't courier new. So I went into the web inspector to see what they're using. And in fact, it is courier STD, which is sort of a, a, a web hosted version of courier. It looks great. It's a great look for their site. It's a great fit for their brand. Anyway, poking around the source code, guess what? It's a Squarespace site. Again, they're there making cool bread. They make the best English muffins. They call them Philly muffins. Oh my God, they are the best English muffins I've ever had in my life. You guys, if you don't live in, if you do live in Philly, see where you can get them. And if you don't live in Philly, uh, you're missing out. Uh, but anyway, they're using Squarespace. It makes total sense because all they want to do is make great bread. They're they're not here to make a website and and spend a lot of time on it and maintain it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Squarespace is the way that you can make your website and just have no work. Just make it easy. It just runs and they handle everything. You can register your domain with them. They have the CMS so you can post 
new content. Um, they also have award-winning tech support. The next time you need to make a website or, and knowing the people who listen to this show, the next time somebody comes to you for help making a website, go to Squarespace, get started, give it an hour, give it even just half an hour and see how far you can get. You'll be amazed. And it, it's really just a terrific product and service. Um, go there and you get a free trial. I think it's 30 days. Uh, get started. And then just remember this code, talk show. No the, just T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. When you do sign up to pay, use that code and you get 10% off. They let you sign up for a whole year at a time. So you could save 10% on a whole year of Squarespace hosting just by remembering that code, talk show. All right, let's get started. There's a lot of questions. Like I said, I don't think I'm going to get through them all. First category is uh, questions related to the new 15-inch MacBook Pro, which I've been testing now for about two weeks um, and pretty much doing all of my computing on. I've kind of thrown myself in knee-deep. Uh, and let me issue this. This is a correction from the show I did last week with Marco Armand talking about this. And I, I, I raved about Migration Assistant, a product from Apple that lets you, you, know, you get a new Mac, use Migration Assistant, you can copy over uh, all of your stuff from another machine. I said uh, it copied almost everything, except it didn't get my login items. Well, I ended up looking into this, and it turns out that the login items, the, the things in the users and groups uh, system prep panel that uh, are apps that, and a lot of them are usually background apps um, that start automatically when you log in. Um, a lot of the ones that I thought didn't get moved over, I looked at my source machine, which is the my old personal 2014 MacBook, 13-inch MacBook Pro. It turns out I looked there, and the ones that I thought I had set up as login items uh, weren't set up there either. And so I think what has happened for a couple of these things, like Text Expander and the Keyboard Maestro um, engine, Keyboard Maestro is a great, great utility, but the, and there's... It, Part of what makes it work is that there's this invisible process in the background and engine, and it has to be running. Otherwise, the keyboard maestro doesn't work. Um, another one that I didn't think moved over was a great little background service called Fast Scripts by Daniel Jalkett. Uh, Fast Scripts is uh, like a system-wide scripts menu that lives up in the menu bar and lets you have these uh, uh you know, Apple scripts, shell scripts, anything like that. You can run them anywhere in the system. Love it. I could, I, I don't know what I would do without it. Anyway, I think that these apps, they weren't in my login items on my previous MacBook Pro. And I think what was happening is that for you, because I do have the preference turned on to reopen previously running apps when I log back in. So if I restart the machine or log out and log in, I have the preference set to reopen whatever apps were already running. I think for years now, because I have that set, those background things have been relaunching automatically um, every time I restart or install a system update. Uh, without being login items, they were just relaunching because I have that preference on. So my apologies to the migration assistant team. Uh, it's even better than I thought because the couple of login items I did have on that machine did make it over to the new machine. So even your login items move over. They're definitely supposed to. And even on my machine, the ones that were there as login items did. Uh, so glad to get that off my chest. I felt very guilty about having, having besmirched uh, even one tiny aspect of migration assistant, given how amazingly good it, it turned out to be. Uh, so here we go. MacBook pro uh, James Atkinson asks, uh, probably already asked, but does it get loud under load? 
Uh, well, that's the first question. So it wasn't asked already, James. That's a very good question. In my personal use, uh, which is not very strenuous, I'm not doing video editing. I'm, I'm not doing uh, anything particularly heavy. The fan has never come on. So it is dead silent. Uh, and I've done some stuff that is somewhat stressful. I've imported images uh uh, shot in raw on my Fuji X100S into photos and had them process in the background. Um, I have installed a bunch of stuff from Homebrew, some of which needed to be compiled uh, uh, by the Xcode command line tools. The fan never came on. The only thing that I've done in the two weeks I've had this machine where the fan came on is when I let my son Jonas play Fortnite on it. And yes, when he was playing Fortnite, the fan definitely came on and the machine definitely got hot. Um, was it loud? It was no louder than I would expect than, than it would be for a, a MacBook under duress, you know, that was being stressful. I don't think it was any louder than previous machines, probably quieter. And if anything, the people who wish that the thing could run faster under load, it, they probably wish that it got louder, that it had a, a bigger, thicker, more significant cooling system. Um, you can definitely hear it when it's under load. Um, but Fortnite was the only thing I've done where that even kicked in. Uh, Again, I, I don't know how else to say it other than while the fan is running, I don't, I don't know how it could be any quieter. Uh, next question is from somebody whose Twitter name is uh, ironically racist satirically. So hopefully that means they're not actually racist. Uh, I don't know, but it's a good question. Uh, in your opinion, do you think Apple should, not will, should, a, swallow their pride in reverse course with touch bar and thickness of MacBook Pros, presumably. B, make a new top-of-the-line Pro, MacBook Pro, presumably, again, for Pros that's thicker with legacy ports, uh, hardware function keys, higher-end components, etc. or C, stay the course. So I think A and B here are actually the same thing. I mean, swallowing their pride in reversing course with the touch bar and thickness and be making a new top of the line pro that's thicker is that's the same thing. So I sort of feel like it's a or B, you know, are they going to make a thicker quote unquote pro or B stay the course? And I suspect, uh, again, he's asking whether they should not will, I think they will stay the course, whether they should, I don't know. Uh, I think that a, significantly thicker like gaming pc laptop style laptop is just not in apple's dna and i don't think it should be in their dna i don't think they should do it um a little bit thicker what's the point right uh, i you know i know that there's a lot of hey we you know the previous generation was thin enough uh nobody asked for them to make it thinner why not keep it the thickness that it was and have it run faster etc I get it. Uh, and there is something to this, right? Where, and, and I think Marco and I talked about this on my show last week, where the current lineup of MacBook Pros, I think it, it compared to the desktop is roughly analogous to the regular iMac 5Ks. They are excellent machines. They are premium machines. They are definitely not low-end machines. These are premium personal computers with terrific displays, excellent 
consumer to prosumer performance. Um, but Apple saw fit with the iMac to do the iMac Pro, which is not just like a little name. It's not just that they, that they tacked on the word pro to it and, and anodized the aluminum in a space gray color and gave you a black keyboard and, and trackpad. Uh, you know, it, it internally, it is, they're, they're using Intel Xeon processors, which are totally professional grade. They're using professional grade Ram. And it's, they didn't just shoehorn those into the same enclosure. It is an entirely different as much as they look the same cosmetically side by side the cooling system in the iMac Pro is entirely different it's it's just if you took it apart it's just an entirely different system architecture and it is in every way that it is different than a regular iMac other than the cosmetic difference of the space gray aluminum um put that aside in every other way that they're different they are different in ways that are truly for professionals who need high end computing performance is there such a need in the laptop lineup and i kind of think there is i do there are people who use laptops for whatever reason like you know developers who work at a place where everybody gets issued a laptop that's just it or you move around you know and and you you know even if you want a display rather than get an iMac or an iMac Pro you want to plug your MacBook into the external display or another example video and photo professionals who are doing stuff in the field right? You're out there shooting photos in the field and you want to process them in Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever you're using right there on the spot where you need a portable for that. And you need the best performance that you can possibly get. Uh, and it's weird. I do. I, I, and I mentioned this with Marco. I kind of feel that Apple has backed themselves into a corner marketing wise by calling all of the premium non super thin MacBooks, quote unquote, MacBook pro. They've already used the pro moniker. Um, so with the iMac, the iMac, again, the regular iMac 5Ks are amazing machines. They are not like baby computers. They are terrific computers. I use one from 2014 and it is still to my touch, super fast. It is super fast, still has a beautiful display. I love it. Um, it, it but the iMac pro is pro in ways that there is no corresponding MacBook Pro that is that much more quote unquote pro than the standard machines. Is that reason enough not to do it just because they've already used the pro name for the MacBook Pros? That seems a bit silly. And I, I don't think that actually explains why they wouldn't do it. But I think it kind of belies their thinking on the matter that that they sort of see what they've got, what they're shipping is pro. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that's a good answer for should they uh, – it's a little bit rambling, but that's the best I can do. I got to move on. J. Robert Lennon asks, have you found a meaningful use for the touch bar or does it seem to you that it's going to go the way of the iPod hi-fi? Here's a corresponding question from the other perspective. Taylor Allen asks, do you think there's anything Apple can do to change the narrative around the touch bar? I like it and find it useful for editing an email. Um, uh, the touch bar is one of those things, and I think it's often the case, but the people who hate it, the people who wish that Apple had never done it or that they would just forget about it, brush it under you know the rug and go back to hardware keys, they seem to think everybody agrees on that. And I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, it, clearly Taylor Allen here who asked the question likes it. I don't hate it either. Um, 
And I personally wonder how much the the hate around the touch bar is specifically about the absence of a hardware escape key. Uh, I use the escape key somewhat often. I miss it. Uh, I don't like the software one on the touch bar. Uh, but I don't use it as much as some people. Some developers use it a lot um, just because there are uh, text editors that developers use like Vim that pretty much you're, you're hitting escape as often as you hit the space bar uh, that frequently and not having a hardware escape key is it can be a problem. Um, so what I kind of wish that Apple had done with these new MacBook Pros that just shipped this month, um, I and I think I said this back in 2016 when I first reviewed these machines. Um, I kind of wish that they had put a hardware, traditional hardware escape key right up in the top left corner above the tilde and backtick key, uh, just and made the touch bar go from that escape key over to the touch ID button on the other side. We already have a button up there in the touch bar, a real button. That's the touch ID sensor. That's a button. It's not part of the touch bar. Um, I don't think cosmetically it would look bad if there was a hardware escape key up there in the corner and they're already not, um, uh, using the, the, the part of the touch bar all the way to the right. That's what I kind of wish that they had done as a, as a 2.0 touch bar. And I wonder how much of the complaints that would alleviate for me personally, everything else about the touch bar. I like, I don't, I I've never liked using the, F1 through F12 keys for things like brightness and sound. It's always seemed like a kludge to me. It's always seemed ugly to me that they print, they've, they've got the F, F1, F2, all that printed on it, and these cryptic little icons for the brightness and stuff like that. They, they've seemed very fiddly to me for ever since they've started doing it. And it's, it seems to me very un-Apple-like to have those keys. I think that the touch bar is elegant. And for things like brightness and sound, uh, you know, volume adjustment, I like the touch bar better than using hardware buttons. Um, it's not perfect though, because they're, you know, y- you have to look at it. You can't do it by feel. So I guess if you really memorize where the volume keys are, you could get there without having to look, but I kind of, you know, I, I I think this is more elegant and I like it. Um, and I don't think it's going to go away. I don't think that Apple is going to abandon it. Uh, last week on my show, Marco mentioned uh, a trick that uh, you can use. You don't need third-party software at all. You can go into system preferences keyboard and there's a modifier keys button. And then it brings up a little alert where you can change what the modifier keys do. And you can change the caps lock key to map it to escape. And that's that's what Marco's been doing with these keyboards. I've turned it on. And I think it's pretty cool. Because I don't really use caps lock for caps lock. Uh, um, uh, using it as escape is a pretty good workaround. And it's really smart. It even is smart enough to know once you've said, hey, use the caps lock key for escape. It no longer triggers the green light for caps lock. So it's not like every other time that you use caps lock for escape that the green light for caps lock comes on and off. It just never comes on once you've said, don't use it for caps lock. Um, that's a pretty good workaround. Uh, otherwise though, if you really want high-end MacBook with hardware function keys, I think you're out of luck. I think that that ship has sailed. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't get it. I don't get what you'd want the other F keys for. Um, uh, sorry, Josh centers, uh, editor at tidbits 
wrote, I have a friend wanting to max out a MacBook Pro. Is the i9 a good buy after the fix, meaning the supplemental uh, software update that came out last week to fix the weird bug where in some certain cases uh, uh, the Core i9 high-end MacBook Pro actually was performing worse than a four-core Core i7? Uh, or is it too limited thermally to go back to Joss's question? As far as I can tell, after the supplemental fix last week, the core i9 is working perfectly. Again, I haven't run extensive benchmarks, but I've looking at the YouTube, uh, YouTubers, uh, like Dave, David Lee, I think his name is who originally reported the issue where, where Adobe premiere pro was actually running slower on the core i9, uh, and, and only got acceptable performance when he literally put it in this freezer, um, and then got similar results running it not in the freezer after the supplemental fix. As far as I can tell, the supplemental fix actually fixed it. It was a bug. It was relatively simple. And the Core i9 runs as fast as Apple promises. If you look at Apple's promised performance gains, and you know, I think they say like up to 70% faster than last year's high-end uh, model, that's about right. Um, I don't think the Core i9 is magic. I think as Marco said last week on the show, effectively, they, they really probably should have just kept it as a, they still should have called it a core I seven. It's not really like a new thing. They've, they've added two cores, but they've stayed on a 14 nanometer process. Um, and, and, you know, you effectively get the performance you'd expect going from four cores to six cores. Uh, and that's it. So if that sounds good to you, I would definitely recommend this machine. I think it's exactly what Apple describes it as. I don't think there's any thermal problem with it. Uh, and it's a good time to buy because we know that Apple doesn't really update machines. Like they're not going to come out with new MacBook Pros three months or six months from now. They, you know, pretty much the best you can hope for is once a year. So if you have the professional need and you want the fastest possible MacBook that you can get, you should definitely get the Core i9 MacBook Pro. Uh, it is. It is absolutely what Apple says. It's the fastest MacBook Pro you can buy. It's faster at everything. How much faster depends on how much, uh, you know, whatever the task is, how much it can be multi-threaded uh, or parallelized, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think it is exactly as Apple describes. Cameron Williams asks, Apple still makes the best laptops, but would you say they're still great laptops? I, I say yes. Do I think they're perfect? No, but I don't know that they've ever been perfect. Uh, probably the closest to perfect was around 2014. And, you know, there are, you know, that's what I own. And I love that machine. Uh, it's obviously slower than the current ones. It's four years old. Uh, but boy, that was cl as close to perfection as, as Apple could get. It had great battery life, it had a retina display, uh, had a great selection of ports. And I think if there's any downside, there are two things that you, you know, people, they're all, they're both obvious and they've both been discussed to death. But the two things that are questionable on the current MacBook Pro lineup are the keyboard and the port situation. On the keyboard front, the reliability issue is a huge, was a huge problem. Uh, does this silicone membrane that they've started shipping as of this generation this month, does it fix the reliability problem? The jury's out. We only time will tell. And, you know, I've used this thing for two weeks. I had it at Marco's beach house. I mean, I didn't take it to the actual beach, so it's not like I actually exposed it to sand, but, 
Um, I've had no problems with any of the keys. Um, but you know, two weeks in who does, I mean, it's, you know, the problem a lot of people have is it happens a year in or two years in or three years in, uh, I expect the, you know, a keyboard to, to work for years and years. There's no reason with a 2000 or 3000 or even more MacBook that you shouldn't expect it to work for years and have the keyboard work with perfect reliability. Um, so the jury's out on whether this fixes that. In terms of the keyboard working as designed, you know, the big issue is the travel. In other words, these keys don't move as far down as the previous ones. But Apple's been doing that. That's, that's been true forever. The keyboard, you know, Apple's laptops going back to the PowerBook era uh, have always moved in one direction in the long run. They've always gotten thinner. And because the machines get thinner and lighter, the keyboards necessarily have to get thinner. Um, I, two weeks in, especially using this machine almost exclusively for the last two weeks, I, I'm getting used to the keyboard. And to me, laptop keyboards are always a compromise. I mean, and, and I'm weird because I like to use an old Apple extended keyboard to mechanical keyboard with lots of travel and clicky feel. Um, that has, you know, a keyboard, a hardware keyboard at my desk that has way more travel and clickiness than anything that Apple sells or any modern keyboard really has other than new mechanical keyboards. Um, and compared to that, compared to a real mechanical keyboard, no laptop keyboard ever has felt great to me in terms of what I think typing on a laptop compared to typing at my desk. Um, and you get used to it, you know, it's always a compromise, uh, I find that I'm used to this, even as someone who really likes a clicky keyboard with lots of travel, I can get used to this. And the longer I use it, the more it, it feels okay. Um, but it's a personal preference. Um, but I don't think, you know, I don't expect them to go back to more travel. I think once they go to this, I, you know, if you don't like it, if you think that the travel isn't enough, I, I bad news for the future. Cause I don't think they're ever going to go back. The port situation is the bigger problem, I think. And, and again, Marco Arman and I talked about this uh, at length on the previous episode of the show, but the a US the USB C ecosystem uh, several years into these USB C only MacBooks simply isn't where Apple surely expected it to be. You can't get a good USB C hub. You really can't. And there are tons of USB A plugs and peripherals out there. And at the very least. There, I, I don't, I don't use a lot of USB peripherals. Um, but even as someone who doesn't use a lot of them, even I already need a USB C, a, a USB A to USB C adapter. Uh, even right now, I'm recording this podcast using the 15 inch MacBook Pro. I need a USB adapter just to plug my microphone in. I mean, I guess I could buy a different cable, um, but I don't have that cable, so I needed the adapter. Uh, that's a downside, but I don't think it means that they're not great laptops. I still think they're great laptops. I think that they have tremendous fit and finish, uh, absolutely beautiful displays, um, and overall are in great trackpads. Uh, it, it's they're I, I think they're great laptops overall. I really do. Uh, Tom bridge asks, does the true tone display actually matter? Uh, I think it does. And I think it's exactly the same on the Mac as it is on iOS, where for me, at least, um, 
true tone isn't something I notice. It's something I don't notice. But then when I look at a non-true, after I get used to it, when I look at a non-true tone display side by side with a true tone display in indoor lighting, I'm appalled by the non-true tone display. I think it looks off. I, I, it's, again, it's just something that you don't appreciate until you see, until you get used to it and then go back to one that doesn't have it. I love that this machine has it. And it's probably my single favorite thing about it compared to my personal 2014 MacBook Pro. Um, here's a question from Brandon Miller. I'm curious about the difference you see, meaning me, between Night Shift and True Tone. You're pretty on the record about liking True Tone, but to me, they're pretty similar and make the screen look terrible. We have these great, accurate screens, and they make it look like someone peed on them. Um, so that's interesting. But to me, I think there's a big difference between Night Shift and True Tone. I believe it that Brandon here, and I believe other people, can see the True Tone effect and don't like it, that they can tell no matter what the color is ambient color in the room is they can see that the display is doing something, uh, faking something, you know, doing a color shift to accommodate for it. And it throws everything off. I believe you that you see it. And if you do see it, I'm sure you hate it. Um, but I think the point of true tone is that for most people, they don't see it and it actually makes the display seem more natural, even though it's actually not showing true colors. Whereas night shift is purposefully, shifting the color in a way that is supposed to be noticeable. You're supposed to be, you know, there's no way that people don't notice that there's everything is has a yellow greenish sickly tint to it. When I see somebody using night shift on an iPhone, I'm appalled. I often think, cause I go, I, I don't have it turned on. Uh, nobody in my family uses it. So I don't see it for weeks at a time. And then I, I see somebody using it. And I often, my first thought for a moment is always like, maybe they drop their phone and, broke the display in some way. And now it, it shows weird colors. And then I think, Oh no, no, they've got night shift on. Like to me, it looks so gross that it seems broken. Uh, your mileage may vary. Obviously other people might see, have the same feeling with true tone, but to me that's night shift is doing that on purpose. And I still believe that the, uh, the, if it, if it works with your eyes, if you feel like your eyes aren't bothered as much when you're using night shift, you know, good for you and, and keep using it. But I think the pseudoscience that it makes you sleep better is a crock of shit. I don't think that there's any, any truth to that at all. Again, if your eyes are comfortable, you can tell, but I think this idea that it helps you sleep better at night because you're not showing blue tones on the screen is, is a big pile of horse shit. Dimitri, no last name asks, uh, do you think it's worth to upgrade from a 2017 base 15 inch to the new base model 15 inch with upgraded RAM and for two extra cores. Also can fan speed be adjusted by the user? Uh, I don't think it's worth upgrading from a 2017. I, I really don't unless you're really RAM constrained, but if you're RAM constrained, you know it. If you really need 32 gigs of RAM rather than a 16 gig config, you know it, and I guess it is worth it if you're what you're the work you're doing actually maxes out the RAM. Otherwise, I can't see that it would be worth upgrading from a 2017 model. Uh, I would I would just use that till it you know for a couple of years and then upgrade. Uh, can the fan speed be adjusted by the user? No way. I mean, I don't even know where you would do that. I mean, maybe there's some kind of command line stuff you can do that's all, you know off the books, but it's certainly in the you know, in terms of the controls that Apple exposes and system preferences, there's no control over fan speed, but I don't think you need to worry about it. The fan never kicks in for me. Um, 
Joel Hausman asks, does the new keyboard with the membrane feel any different than the previous version of this horrible keyboard? Uh, tell us what you really think, Joel. I think it definitely feels different. Uh, I don't have a, a extensive number of these side by side to compare with, but, uh, I did compare it to the regular, just plain MacBook from 2017. Um, and I remember using these, the first generation of it, or maybe that was the second generation on the, the 20, I think the first generation butterfly was on the original one port MacBook. Second generation started with the 2016 MacBook pros that switched to this design. And now this is the Apple's calling the third generation. I think it definitely feels better. Uh, feels different and better, and it definitely sounds better. There's no question about it. It's there's there's it's just quieter and it's a more pleasing sound while you're typing. It's it truly is a third generation keyboard. There's you know whether you like it or not, whether you <laughs> think it's still a horrible keyboard. There's no question in my mind that it's more than just a, a putting a membrane on the old keyboard. It's it's a different you know it's it's definitely a generation ahead. It's like a three point Um and I like it better. Jeff, no last name, uh, asked, why didn't Apple include a plug adapter extension given the cost is $2,800? That's a great question. Um, so for those of you, if you don't know, up until this, up until they started switching to these USB-C adapters for MacBook Pros, you're, when you bought a new MacBook or MacBook Pro of any kind or a PowerBook going back to then, you'd get the rectangular power adapter, which by default, has a little prong that you can open up and plug right into the wall. So the adapter is right in the socket or they'd ship an extensive, you know, maybe a five or six foot cord and you could swap, pop the little uh, prong off the power adapter, put the extension cord on instead and get an extra six feet. And they used to include that in the box and they don't anymore. Uh, I'd, I presumably why they didn't include it is that Apple has determined or guessed or figured that most people don't use it and therefore they can save some money by not including it. And perhaps more than the cost of the extension cord itself, I feel like the, the big savings is in space in the packaging that the packaging, uh, I don't have the box in front of me, but uh, the box for this, I don't believe that that they could fit that power cord in the box, the box that they're actually shipping these things in. They'd have to make the box at least a little bit thicker uh, to include a, a power cord. Uh, and so I guess, you know, they're, they're saving a bit of money. But as Jeff says, for a $2,800 plus, what, what could be, and up to, you know, the config I'm using here is like a $5,000 config. And I think it goes up to like 7000 if you maxed out the SSD storage. Um, for a multi-thousand dollar laptop, I think it's a nickel and dime move not to include the power cord. So I sort of feel like where Apple should meet users halfway, my idea would be that, okay, if you don't want to include it by default, because most people don't use it, don't. But anyone who buys one of these machines who wants one should be able to get one for free. Um, like maybe while you're buying online, they could say, would you like a power adapter cord? And if you say yes, it would ship in a separate little box. And if you're buying in the store, they could ask you as you're buying it and then just give you one. Uh, I really think it's ridiculous that you have to with a 20, the 3000, $4,000, $5,000 laptop that you have to spend money to get a, a power extension cord. I'm personally a fan of them with my personal MacBook. I keep the extension cord on the, the power adapter, at least in my, the, the one that I take with me in my backpack traveling. Cause 
I usually don't need it. Usually the, the, the length between the adapter and the MagSafe thing is, is long enough for me. Um, but often enough, I do need the extra length that the extension cord enables that it's worth keeping it in my backpack. So, you know, at least a couple times a year, I find myself needing it. And so it's worth having. Uh, and I do feel like it's sort of a nickel and dime move with these machines not to include it. Paul Sprangers asks, a thicker MacBook Pro, which has more ports, more CPU power, more GPU and battery life, should Apple get on that? Well, I, this is sort of a repeat of a previous question. Uh, I, I Best I can say is, in theory, yes, but I don't expect it, no. Sam Armstrong asks, will ever... Will Apple ever back down from their current laptop, lap, laptop keyboard? I am planning on getting a Windows machine unless they make major changes. Back down is the wrong way to look at it. If you're expecting them to go back to the previous keyboard design, it is not going to happen. And I don't think it should. I don't think it's, I think that while there are some people who hate, it enough, hate this design and wish that they would, I don't think that that number is enough that, to justify it. Um, in theory, would they ever go to a keyboard with more travel in a, in some future world where uh, maybe with ARM-based Macs, the actual computer part is so much smaller and it maybe needs so much less physical battery inside the case that without making the machine thicker, they could put a keyboard in that has slightly more travel? In theory, they could do that. It would make me happy. Uh, I don't expect it to happen, though. Uh, why should one consider the core i9? This is a question from a guy named Mayer, M-A-Y-U-R, no last name or no first name. I don't, I'm not sure which, but why should one consider the core i9 over the core i7 given the core count is the same? Is typing uncomfortable on the laptop when it gets hot? Um, well, I'd, the core count isn't the same, so I'm a little confused by this because the core i9 has six cores and the core i7 models have four cores. Uh, so if you need more cores, the core i9 actually is worth it. Um, I think it is also slightly faster at single threaded stuff. Um, but if you don't really have multi core needs, if you don't do stuff that can be parallelized, you probably shouldn't buy the core i9 model. You should save the money and get the, get a quad core core i7. Uh, when the machine gets hot, the only time it's gotten hot for me is when my son was playing Fortnite, and like most, uh, or perhaps every other macbook i've used in recent memory it really only gets hot in the area above the keyboard in that aluminum strip between the top of the keyboard and the display hinge um that's really the only spot where where i see it i feel it getting hot the keyboard itself doesn't get hot so i i don't think it gets uncomfortable mikey lauren asks is 13 inch is still the best compromise for you that's a very good question i've been a fan of the 13 inch macbook pros for a while and even before that i was using my my before i was using a 13 inch macbook pro i was actually using an 11 inch macbook air for a few years as my portable um using this 15 inch though for the last two weeks has been eye-opening in some ways in terms of really appreciating the extra screen real estate that it provides. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff with side-by-side -side windows, uh, including putting together all these Q and A's. I, uh, 
I actually solicited them by Twitter, and I also said you could send them by email. I, I as I said before, I I spent close to four hours putting these questions together, and I only got through the ones sent by Twitter. I actually literally have not looked at my email in like forty eight hours. So, uh, I, I just going through Twitter, but but putting them together, I had a BB Edit window with a bunch of open text documents based on categories, and Tweetbot over on the right, and I could drag tweets over from Tweetbot to BB Edit in a way without overlapping the windows, just side by side, full, you know, full width for both windows that I don't think I could have done on the 13 inch. I mean, I could have, but it w- something would have, you know, the BB Edit window probably would have had been uncomfortably narrow. Uh, I do appreciate the size for me personally, though, because it's not my only machine, um, because primarily I, you know, at home and mostly at home, I use an iMac, a 5k iMac at my desk. Um, the portability advantages of 13 inch that it's smaller, it fits in a smaller bag. It's a little bit lighter. Um, you can use it on, and it's in, in more crowded conditions, like a coach seat on an airplane more comfortably, uh, than you could a 15 inch. I think for me personally, 13 inch is still the best compromise, but I have to admit using this 15 inch for two weeks, I'm a little bit a little bit more torn on the issue than I was two weeks ago. Um, but if I had to, if you said you have to buy a new MacBook pro today, I would probably buy a, uh, I, I would buy a 13 inch MacBook pro, but it's close. Um, here's a guy whose name on Twitter is squash Alcatraz. I don't, I don't believe that's his actual given name. It's probably a pseudonym, but if it is your name, uh, you know, you, your parents probably owe you an apology. Uh, which is the bigger dud, MacBook leather sleeves or iPod socks? I love this question. For those of you who don't remember, iPod socks were a real product that Apple came out with probably sometime around 2003, 2004, but uh, maybe 2003. I don't know. But it was in the spinning hard drive era of iPods when they were thicker, more like a, the size of a pack of cards. Um, and... One year they came out with new iPods and they also came out with these socks, which were literally like socks. And you, the idea was you could slip your iPod into it and then throw it in your backpack and not worry about the iPod getting scratched up. Uh, wasn't really padded, but it would certainly scratch proof and it was easy to slide them in and out. I believe that they sold for something like 19 or $20. Maybe they were $29 knowing Apple. I, I, I'm almost certain they weren't more than $29 because I think that would have been scandalous. Um, I had one. I had a gray one, of course, uh, not really much for colors. Uh, I liked it. It was actually a useful way. I, I actually used it as intended. Like when I was throwing an iPod into a bag for travel, I would put it in the sock. Um, you know, was it overpriced for a cotton sock? Even if it was $19, yeah, I guess. But uh, I thought it was useful. So I would say the bigger dud are these new MacBook leather sleeves because I think people did buy the socks. I don't think they were a hit. They didn't really, they came out with them once, only talked about them once, never talked about them again. But these leather sleeves are 180 for the 13-inch and $200 for the 15-inch. And I don't think they're worth it. I don't think they're good. I don't think they're, I, I, they don't feel premium to me. Uh, somebody last week after Marco and I laughed about this thing on, on, uh, on the show last week, uh, somebody pointed me to a company called Saddleback Leather, uh, and they make leather sleeves for MacBooks. And 
they I, I haven't touched them, but they certainly look like better leather, and they have like a lifetime guarantee or a hundred year guarantee. I mean, literally, like uh, they guaranteed past your lifetime to last, uh, and they're only a hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, it really it does seem like the prices on these MacBook leather sleeves are exorbitant. I, it doesn't really make sense to me to spend two hundred dollars on these things. I mean, I think the discussion would be very different if they were, I don't know, seventy dollars or something like that. Um, I don't expect these to sell at all. So I, I would guess the bigger dud is the MacBook leather sleeve. TJ Draper asks, I-9, do the fans run much? How loud? Again, for me, only uh, only playing Fortnite, uh, and that was Jonas playing Fortnite. Other stuff I do, they don't. And they're not that loud. They're no louder than, than you would expect. Uh, Samer Farha asks, is not having a physical escape key an issue, or is it fine in practice? Well, I talked about this. Uh, I think it is an issue, but it is fine. And being able to map caps lock to escape, I think does alleviate it to some degree, although you're going to have to change some habits to get used to that. Uh, if Apple sold upgradable storage and Ram, but thicker MacBook, would you consider it? This is a question from Gordon McDowell. Uh, if Apple sold upgradable, but thicker iMac, would you consider it? Their phones get thicker, but their laptops get smaller or phones get bigger, but the laptops get smaller. Uh, I think upgradable components, uh, you know, there are trade-offs, you know, and that's the way the world used to be, you know, that you could buy a machine and upgrade the RAM a year later. Uh, you could upgrade the storage uh, at any time. You can't do that anymore. Everything's all sealed up. Every, the RAM is soldered onto the motherboard. Uh it is what it is. I think that it's the way of the future, though, uh, and, and we're never going to go back. Uh, and it, it, to me, it's not really a selling point. I do appreciate when I was younger and, and I was strapped for money, I do appreciate the fact that I could get the best machine I could afford, which wasn't necessarily the best machine, period. And then later, uh, a year later, maybe two years later, I mean, at one point, I think I upgraded the RAM in my 1991 Mac LC like four four years after I bought it, maybe five. I don't know. I, but I I <laughs> upgraded from f four megabytes to ten megabytes of RAM. Um, I think that the the LC had two megabytes built in, and then there were two slots, which by which I had two one megabyte SIM cards in, and then I upgraded to two four megabyte SIMs years later for a total of ten megabytes of RAM. <laughs> Uh, which is funny because, you know, uh, like a fart sound uses 10 megabytes of RAM these days. Um, I appreciate that, that, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, there's always, you know, there's students today who probably can't buy a maxed out MacBook and then years from now, maybe they could upgrade it in theory. So I, you know, I'm not saying that upgradability has no, uh, uh, positive sides but it's just the way of the it's just the way of the world today and and i think the way that machines have gotten thinner the way that the the unibody construction of these things um it, it's just just how it is i mean it's it's it, it no more you know i get over it is my answer <laughs> nick here uh author of the excellent pixel envy website asks and he prefaces his question with, in parentheses, for real, in what ways does this, meaning this 15-inch MacBook Pro, not feel like a spiritual successor to, say, the first 15-inch MacBook Pro or the PowerBook 
G4. And is that a problem or is it simply evolutionary? It's a good question. I feel that it mostly does feel like the true spiritual successor. To me, the modern Apple laptop era starts not with the PowerBook G4. Well, specifically the titanium PowerBook G4, um, where Apple moved from plastic and, you know, black or very dark plastic uh, construction to metal cases. Uh, Titanium was obviously substandard in many ways. It flaked. It, 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 you know, uh, it didn't last. It, it, it showed a lot of wear on the palms because it, it just wasn't a durable material. Aluminum clearly is Apple's go-to material uh, for the last, uh, geez, I don't know what, 15 years, uh, maybe more, uh, you know, but the, the, uh, and the aluminum era for Macs, uh, for, iPods for watches, you know, they use it everywhere. Um, and I don't see that coming to an end soon. I mean, eventually they'll move on to something, I guess. Um, but they really, really use and, and have redefined the way that machines are constructed. I mean, you find aluminum laptops now and it's the standard across the industry because they all copy Apple. Um, but that's clearly, this is where they, to me, there's a clear, evolution from the titanium G4 to this month old 15 inch MacBook pro. I think it is the spiritual successor in almost every way. And if there's any way that it's not, it's the port situation where, especially for the 15 inch pro laptops, Apple obviously, and you know, every it's obvious to anybody who follows the company, even remotely, Apple moves away from legacy ports faster than any other computer maker. Um, you name the port, Apple is probably the first to abandon it, even if you include the flop, floppy disk as a port, which I think is fair. Um, Apple moves away from ports faster than anybody, but the 15-inch Pro laptops have always had what I would, def- at least by Apple standards, a generous assortment of ports that that people would find useful. I think it's most telling that Apple has for years included an SD card reader in their pro laptops, even in the 13 inch model, um, which is sort of an unappley type thing to do um, to include something so specific, um, but it's useful. And I think that given if the USB-C ecosystem were in better shape and it was easier to get everything with USB-C by default, and if there were really good USB-C ports are are hubs available that could power, you know, supply power and and multiple other ports. It might be a little different, but I feel like the failure in this is the failure of USB-C as a whole. And that's the one area where it feels, but it doesn't, it's not for lack of um, spirit, right? I feel like the spirit is there. It's just that the, the, the actual market has failed Apple in this regard. All right, that's the end of my MacBook Pro questions. Here we are. We're almost an hour in. I'm never going to get to all of these topics. I've still got a whole topic on the Mac in general, not specific to the MacBook Pro. iOS and including uh, both the software and iPhone and iPad. A whole category on HomePod, Apple TV, entertainment uh, category on Apple in general. And then uh, last, a miscellaneous and personal 
category of questions. There is absolutely no way. I'm one out of six categories down and I'm almost an hour in. And I really thought that this whole thing was only going to last an hour. So I don't know what I'm going to do. If, if, if this proves popular, maybe I'll do a second episode with the, uh, with the same sort of format. No guests, just me answering these questions. Um, but before I get to the rest of these Mac questions, let me take a break and thank my other sponsor today. And it's a great company. I love this company, uh, Casper. Casper are the sleep experts on the internet. You spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable when you do it. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make sleep as great as it could be. Quality sleep surfaces, mattresses, and a lot more. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. Their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. They have over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across their own website, Amazon, and Google. Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Now look, they offer two other mattresses now in addition to their original, the Wave and the Essential. The Wave is sort of their higher-end model. Uh, It features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. And they also offer a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets, uh, comforters, just, just about anything you need to go on a mattress. They offer it. And it's really great stuff. I've got one of the pillows now. I love it. Uh, I think we have the comforter upstairs. It's really, really great. Uh, it's just so comfortable and it really does help you regulate your temperature. You don't get too hot. It keeps you warm when you want to be warm. It's really, really great. All of their stuff is really great. And everything they sell is designed, developed, and assembled right here in the USA. Look, they sell these things at affordable prices for high quality premium mattresses. Their prices cannot be meet, cannot be beaten by, by what you see in, in like a brick and mortar retail mattress store. It's, it's, they're, it's just unbelievable for the quality that you get. And the reason is simple. They cut out the middleman and sell directly to you. They design it. They make it. They ship it to you. That's the deal. Uh, hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. Look, that's the big deal. You go to a mattress store. You can try it. You can sit on it. You can see if you like it. Uh, kind of gross, in my opinion. But you can at least try it out before you buy it. can't do that with an internet mattress. But Casper has you covered They have a 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. That's over three months. You can spend three months with a Casper mattress. And if you are not completely satisfied, go back to their website, say, I want my money back. They'll give you your money back. They'll come. They'll take the mattress away. No hassle. It's just not like uh, when you cancel your cable service and they give you the runaround and stuff like that. They make it easy. Uh, I've even heard from, from a listener or two over the years that they've been sponsoring who said, you know, I bought this thing. It wasn't for me. Uh, I really didn't believe that it would be that easy to send it back, and it really was. Uh, We've got a bunch of Casper mattresses here in the house. I think we're up to three, Uh, and we love them. They're great. They really are. I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Uh, They're really great products. I I really like them. Uh, And they come to you in an amazing, how do they do that size box? Uh, We just got the Wave recently, so we just got one. and again, it's it's hard to believe that that is a queen size mattress when it shows it up at the door. You just think that's just no way, and whoosh, opens up. There it is, 
uh, a full-size mattress. Kind of amazing. They've got free shipping and free returns in the United States and Canada. Uh, 100-day risk-free guarantee and a special offer. Special offer just for listeners of this show. You get 50 bucks towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash talk show. That's just casper.com slash talk show. And remember that code talk show at checkout casper.com slash talk show. And that special code talk show and you save 50 bucks towards select mattresses. That's 50 bucks in your pocket. Terms and conditions apply. My thanks to Casper for sponsoring this show. All right, let's move on to questions about the Mac, and then uh, I don't know what I'll do. Uh, ben Beard asks, what are your thoughts on future MacBooks with ARM processors? The ATP guys think it could happen as soon as 2020. Related question, Jay Dubs asks, do you think Apple will put a powerful, more powerful A-series chip in the MacBook Pros and use it just to power marzipan apps? as a way to transition to ARM and extend battery life. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, I think that putting a, 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 an Apple ARM chip in as the touch bar processor, as a little side a computer within the computer makes sense, but only in the sense that it's a peripheral. In terms of actually using it to run apps, I don't think that that makes sense. I think Apple will switch to ARM. I think they are absolutely full steam ahead working on it. I agree with the ATP guys that it could happen as soon as 2020. I really don't think it could happen next year. I think 2019 is probably too soon. Uh, if I had to guess, my guess would be that they might announce it next year at a, at WWDC to get developers on board with recompiling their apps for arm and, and which shouldn't be too big of a problem, hopefully. Um, uh, cause hopefully developers have seen this coming and haven't been doing anything Intel specific, um, you know, for years now, but who knows? But that's what they did when they switched from PowerPC to Intel is they announced it at WWDC, um, said it would start shipping next year and early the next year, I think in like February, they came out with the MacBook pro. They started with the MacBook pro, but it just switched it. And I think that's what they'll do again. It's not going to be that you have an Intel processor and an arm processor. That's powerful enough to really run apps. Um, there's no reason really for marzipan, um, to, to need an arm processor. Uh, I, 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 I really don't think there's anything, you know, there's, it, it, it runs just fine on, uh, the Mojave beta, you know, running on Intel, uh, the, the, the power savings that you might get from theoretically running Marzipan apps on an arm processor while everything else runs on Intel, uh, I, I think is far outweighed by the cost that it, you'd incur by including both a premium arm processor and an Intel processor in the same machine. That's just wasteful. And that's just not how transitions work. Transitions work by ripping off the band-aid. It's just, here you go. Here's a new MacBook that instead of having an Intel CPU uses a, an Apple A series arm, arm CPU. That's how it works. Um, and before you say it, yes, I remember, I think there was some kind of weird thing where you could get like a 68 K coprocessor back, when the PowerPC Max first shipped, I, I, I don't remember. But for the most part, once when Apple switched from 68K to PowerPC, it was just here's PowerPC Max. Everything is running either 
natively as PowerPC code or emulated 68K. When they switched from PowerPC to Intel, it was here's this machine is now Intel based, not PowerPC based. And I think they'll do the same thing with ARM. Daniel Alm, ALM, he's the developer of the excellent timing app for uh, Mac, just sponsored Daring Fireball recently, actually. It's a great app. It's sort of like uh, helps you keep track of, of what you're, what apps you're using and what you're working on uh, without doing any kind of work. You don't have to log it. It's a great app. Check it out. He asks, uh, theory, next Mac mini will essentially be a rebranded Apple TV 4K with an A11 or A12 processor. What do you think? Uh, in theory, that sounds great because the Apple TV, as we as as it ships today, the Apple TV 4K is is when you run uh, when you try to run uh, benchmarks on it, very if not faster than the currently shipping Mac Mini, which is ridiculously old. It's faster or as fast, and it's way smaller. Um, so in theory, that would be great because it would be cheaper, it would be smaller. Uh, the performance is definitely there. But I kind of hope not. I don't think because I, I really feel like the Mac Mini is so ridiculously outdated at this point that I really, really hope that they come out with a new one this fall. Um, not just faster, but it has to be smaller because as I've written on Daring Fireball recently, the Mac Mini isn't even mini anymore compared to like these Intel NUC computers. I don't know if they pronounce them NUC or what, but you know there there are Intel based mini computers that are the size of an Apple TV or smaller. Uh, it's ridiculous that Apple is still selling the Mac mini and calling it mini when it's way bigger than these things, ridiculously outdated. So my hope is that Apple ships a new Mac mini this year in the fall. And if they do, as I said, a couple of questions ago, there's no, I don't think that, you know, there's no way that they're going to switch to arm this year. Um, so it would have to be Intel based. Um, Peter, Zignigo, Zignego perhaps, uh, asks, the discussion of Fortnite not being supported on Intel integrated graphics with Marco Arment, is the fact that it runs great on modern iOS hardware evidence of Apple's lead in mobile graphics and or Epic's willingness to put in extra effort for that market? I think indisputably, I don't think there's any question that that the fact that Epic put the work in to get Fortnite running well on iPhones and iPads and it doesn't have it doesn't really, I, I think it might run on integrated graphics, but they definitely tell you that it's, it's not great. And it, it isn't great. It does certainly doesn't run anywhere near as well as it does on iOS hardware. Of course, that's proof that, uh, it's proof of the importance of the iOS market and the iOS market is so big and so important that developers like Epic are willing to, to target it specifically. And, you know, metal, the metal APIs are only used on Apple platforms. It's not a cross platform, uh, set of a graphic APIs and it's worth it for developers to support it, even though it's specific to Apple's platforms. Um, because the iOS market is so big and the Mac market is, has, you know, famously, infamously, I mean, I, I'm not going to go on at length about this, but the Mac has never been known for gaming. It's always been behind PCs and gaming, and perhaps it's further behind than it ever has been at this point. Um, 
you know, because there's this whole concept. Well, I, I talked about it with with on the last episode where my son wants to get a gaming PC. There wasn't a, the 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 phrase gaming PC is now it's just like a whole category, uh, and it wasn't years ago. I mean, PCs were known to be better for gaming. People who are serious gamers did buy PCs that were that they configure specifically for gaming, but now it's just like an entire product category. Um, there's no question about it that the Mac is not really relevant. And, and you know, the bigger tell to me isn't the fact that it doesn't run well on integrated graphics. The bigger tell to me is that bug that I talked about on the last episode with, with Marco, where when you run Fortnite on, um, I don't know if it's every Mac, but certainly on the 15-inch MacBook Pro, the first time you try to join a game, it literally t- there's a bug where it takes 10 minutes before you you get in, and it just sits there saying loading dot dot dot, and it, the solution is to literally just sit there and wait 10 minutes, and it lets you in, and then subsequently you can join games, you know, it, it, on a regular uh, with a regular amount of wait. Uh, a couple people wrote to me and thanked me for mentioning that because they ran into the same thing and made the same assumption that my son and I made at first, which was that this it was a never-ending bug. You know, once you wait two, three, four minutes to join a game, it's a pretty safe assumption that you should just force quit the app and try again. And if you run into it, just give up. Um, but this is actually truthfully a, a thing where you have to wait ten minutes and it lets you in. So a couple people wrote to thank me for mentioning that because they they run into it and just gave up. Um, but the fact that that bug has been around at least since April, which is the first time I saw it mentioned on a forum, and they still haven't fixed it at the end of July, is ridiculous. I mean, if the PC version had a bug like that, they'd fix it the next as soon as they possibly could. Um, and the fact that they've let this languish on the Mac tells you everything you need to know about how important Epic sees the Mac as a platform for Fortnite. Uh, Mumper asks, do you have a preference on minimizing... Windows versus using the close button? If so, why? I still struggle to see the difference or any reasoning to use one over the other. This is a crazy question to me. Um, I, I personally don't use minimize at all. Uh, I think by default, when you minimize Windows on Mac OS X, it sticks the window into the dock as a separate little icon. You know, the, the window itself becomes an icon in the dock. And then there's a preference you can turn on in the dock settings to have minimized Windows effectively go into the app they belong to. So like, let's just say you're using text edit and you minimize a window. If you have that preference on, it goes into the animation shows it going into the text edit app icon on the dock. And then to get back to that window, you, uh, you you click on the app in the dock to get the menu and, uh, you can choose it from there. Um, I don't, I don't minimize windows almost, almost never. Uh, I just don't find it useful either way. So I either have the window open and if I'm done with it, I close it. Uh, I don't minimize, um, I, the, the minimize feature could be totally broken and I wouldn't notice for weeks or months because I just never use it. Um, back in the day in the classic Mac OS era, I thought that the, uh, the instead of minimizing what you could do is they called it window shade and you could double click. There was a button you could click in the top right corner of the window, or you could just double click in the dead space anywhere in the title bar of a window. And the whole window would, uh, effectively window shade. It would, the window would go up and all you'd be left with is the title bar. 
and it was a really convenient way to get at something behind the window you were currently in. And one of the things that made it cool was because the title bar didn't move, you could double click the title bar to window shade the window and either look behind the window or drag something behind the window. But if you just wanted to look behind the window, it the title bar was still there, still underneath the mouse pointer. So you could just double click again to open it back up. Part of what, to me, what makes the Mac OS X model of minimizing, which has been here ever since Mac OS 10.0, uh, back in 2001 or 2002, whenever the hell it shipped, um, is that you can't undo, you can't unminimize a window without moving the mouse over to the dock. Whereas the Mac OS, the classic Mac OS window shade feature, you could double click, look behind, double click again, and you know, undo what you've just done without moving the mouse. Um, that was huge, huge. One of the, one of the many thousand paper cuts of ways that, uh, Mac OS 10 to me remains, uh, inferior to the classic Mac OS and UI design. Um, but that's a can of worms. We can't get into here. If we want to finish on any reasonable amount of time, uh, next question, Stephen Foskett asks, do you think Apple really has an insanely great idea for the new Mac Pro? If so, what will it look like? Uh, first part of the first question, yes, I do think they have a great idea, or at least they think they have a great idea, because I also think they thought the trash can Mac Pro was a great idea. But based on what they've told us publicly, uh, you know, they, they seem pretty pretty uh, clear that, that they see that it was a mistake that the Mac, the, the trash can Mac Pro was not designed around the what's now obvious the importance the growing importance of multiple G, of gpus and uh, the the having a, a thermal envelope that could take uh significantly hotter gpus than the trash can is designed to take uh so i think they've got their their i think they've re recalibrated and now have their focus on where the highest of high-end performance computing is going in 2018 2019 what will it look like? I have no idea. None. Uh, I don't have any little birdies who've, who've spilled anything about it. Uh, Apple's lips seem to be sealed on this. I haven't seen even any rumors about what it's going to look like. I have no idea. Um, but I do expect it to be uh, super high performance. I mean, there's, you know, the, to me, the most intriguing thing is given the super high performance universally hailed of the iMac Pro. Um, you know, what exactly, how much faster could, you know, the Mac Pro to justify its existence has to be a lot faster than that. And that's pretty interesting because the iMac Pro is very fast. Uh, Bruce Wager, Wager asks, is it believable that Apple can't make a good Mac for less than $1,000? Seems like their choice, not a question of ability. Of course, there's no question that they could make a cheaper Mac. Uh, I think that's always been true, though. It's been true for you know, 25 years, uh, or 30 years, wherever, however long the Mac is, what, 94, 2004. Yeah. 30, 35 years, 34 years of Mac. Uh, I, I maybe back in 1984, they couldn't make a cheaper Mac. Uh, but certainly for the last 25 years, they could have, if they wanted to, there's no reason, you know, it's a marketing decision that they don't. And the fact that they make iPads, uh, that are, uh, performance compatible certainly as per performant enough that they could run mac os 10 if apple so wanted and they sell them for as low as you know 300 dollars uh is is 
with a very nice display is proof positive that they could make a cheaper Mac if they wanted to, but they choose not to for, for whatever reasons. Um, Vikram Nair asks, how ridiculous is it of Apple to sell the Mac mini or Mac pro at anywhere near the full price as when it came out? What is Apple doing here and why? That's a good question. And I think it's often misunderstood. I think that Apple's pricing scheme for Macs and, and the fact that the, you know, the Mac mini is years and years old, the Mac pro is five years old or something like that. And they still sell them at the same prices as when they came out. That's because the Apple sees the price as part of the brand branding and marketing of its devices. Um, and it really only works if they update them regularly. When they don't update them regularly, it starts to get absurd. And in theory, absolutely, if they're going to continue to sell years-old Mac Minis and Mac Pros, the prices should be significantly lower today than they were when they came out. But they don't because they want to they want to effectively protect those price points so that when new Mac Pros do come out or new Mac Minis do come out, they can keep them at the price that they want them to be at uh, and not have it seem like the like a price hike. So like let's just say if they had started if they had just if if they had, in an alternate universe where they had still the Mac mini was just as old today as it, as it is in our universe, but they had like lowered the price by $100 every year that it went on un, unupdated. And then they come out with a new Mac mini this fall and it goes back to the original price, it would seem like this huge price hike and they want to avoid that. Um uh, I don't think there's, you know, uh, I don't think there's any magic to that. Uh, uh, it is a bit stubborn and it, and it is something that Apple and possibly only Apple can get away with in the PC industry because Apple's, uh, brand and, and user allegiance allows them to, um, but they just don't, their computers aren't commodities in the way that like Dell computers are and that you know raise and lower by fluctuate as component prices go up go up and down they come out with a price and the price is part of the brand of the the device and it stays the same even when it gets a bit ridiculous as is the case with the mac mini and mac pro jackson kernian asks do we know any more about how and why apple got app store skeptical mac developers back into the store as announced at wwdc i don't think there's any secret to it i don't think there's anything that that i you know that, that that's on the record um but you know apps like bb edit which had been out of the store are now coming back panics uh uh i, I believe it's coda uh not transit transmit i forget I, I don't know which of panics apps is definitely coming back to the store i think it's coda um and you know i i know rich siegel at barebones i know the guys at panic uh and and i just I, I don't think there's any secret to it i don't you know it's just good old-fashioned developer relations and i know there's a whole bunch of other apps that this is the case for but i honestly think it's it's there's no secret to it. It's people at Apple who work in developer relations on a one-on-one -on -one personal basis, reaching out to Mac developers who, who've, you know, whose apps either were in the store and were pulled or were never in the store and saying, what do you need? You know, what do you need from us, from Apple? What can we do differently? What APIs can we change? What can we change with sandboxing? What can we improve? What would make the app store, a, a you know, what would make you get back in the app store? Listening and then doing what, what needs to be done. 
just good old fashioned developer relations, you know, and it's it, to me, um, a great sign of Apple's, uh, uh, belief and support of third party Mac developers, uh, and a great sign for the platform going forward. Uh, next question. Uh, Dave Swallow asks, do you think Apple will ever release a Mac mini, a new Mac mini to compete with an Intel NUC, a small Mac that can be a home server? Well, I hope so. Um, I honestly don't know what to think at this point, though. The Mac mini is so old that I really hope they come out with a new one. And if they come out with a new one, I certainly hope it's a lot smaller, uh, possibly cheaper. Um, uh, but at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if they never updated either. I, I don't know why they continued to sell it, though, if that's their goal. But look at what they did with airport hardware, where they kind of stopped updating it years ago and continued to sell it long after uh, they'd seemingly internally decided to, to no longer create new, new hardware. Uh, next question. Kevin Van Haren asks, since you just found out migration assistant is decent, do you keep your documents slash desktop in iCloud? I do not, but it's, it's not because, uh, I think it's very different. Migration assistant, I really underestimated. I really just figured uh, based on old experience from the early two thousands, at least when it didn't really do a good job of moving everything I wanted from an old machine to a new machine. And I found it to be less work to just start from scratch and add it by hand. Um, I really underestimated the modern migration assistant. I think I understand exactly what, when you, when you decide to share your documents folder, in other words, your, the documents folder at the root level of your home folder and your desktop in iCloud, I know exactly what it's supposed to do and whether it works seamlessly or not. I don't want it. I don't want my desktop, the files on my desktop on my various Macs to be shared between them. And I don't want my documents folder to be shared between Macs. I have Dropbox. I also use iCloud, um, uh, you know, storage within apps like numbers. Um, you know, the iWork suite, uh, uh, what's it called? iCloud drive. Um, I use iCloud drive. I use Dropbox, uh, Dropbox, both of those, uh, at this point, I don't know if, if I, I could do without either. Um, and if I want a file to be synced between machines, I will either store it in Dropbox or store it in iCloud Drive. Uh, I like having a documents folder in my home folder on each Mac that is local to that Mac for when I do have files that I don't want to sync for whatever reason between machines. Uh, so no, I don't use that. And to me, syncing the desktop in particular just seemed, would just seem weird. The desktop clearly to me is supposed to be conceptually local to the machine. It, it would be very strange. I, I would find it very undesirable to have my document or my desktop sync between machines. Uh, next question, I'm trying to wrap these Mac questions up here. Uh, Michael Rockwell asks, do you expect Apple to transition the iMac to SSDs as the default option? It's a great question. I think that this is possibly a sign of the difference between the Tim Cook Apple and Steve Jobs' Apple. I think if Steve Jobs were still around, the iMac maybe already would be SSD by default. Um or SSD only. That they're, you know, and the iMac Pro is SSD only. Um 
I, I, the, the advantages of SSD over spinning hard drives in every single regard, other than cost, that you can get more storage for significantly less money with a spinning hard drive than an SSD. Um, but the other advantages of SSD are so great in terms of reliability and performance, and even you know the fact that they're dead silent are so great. And, and to me, that's what Apple computers, Apple products are supposed to be is great. Um, they're so great that it's worth the premium you have to pay. If you really need more storage, I really, you know, and, and you want to pay spinning hard disk prices, then, then you should have to, I think Apple should ha- make you use, uh, an external drive. I, I believe Apple, the iMac should be SSD only at this point. So I definitely think it will be at some point, but I think, I think it, the more interesting thing is that to me, I think it should be already. And I think it would be if Steve Jobs were still CEO. Uh, Derek Martin asks, do you think it's possible that Apple could release Macs primarily powered by an Apple ARM chip, but which also contain an x86 chip for backward compatibility? I kind of answered this before. That's not how transitions work. I don't think they'll do that. I think that once they switch to ARM, it'll be all ARM and probably possibly with some kind of, um, emulation layer so that uh, unupdated apps that are x86 can still run even, even, you know, through an emulator. St. Chris asks, were you a fan of tabbed folders in Mac OS nine, where you could pin a folder to the screen edge as just a title bar tab? It was the central organizing principle of my workflow. I haven't found anything that can replicate it in Mac OS 10. I was a huge fan. I wouldn't call it the central organizing uh, principle of my workflow back then, but it was a great feature and yet again, uh, especially with the Finder, just a terrific example of how the classic Finder was a f- just vastly, infinitely better design than the Mac OS X Finder ever was or probably will be. The idea was you could just drag a window, take the title bar, drag it down to the bottom of the screen, and when it got to the bottom, the, it would change, change from a t- window into a tab, and the tab would stay anchored at the bottom. And while it was there, you could click the tab, and it would pop up. And you could access the the stuff in it and then click it again and it would go back down to a tab. Uh, super convenient for like your current project. If your current project is, you know, organized in a single folder in the finder um, or frequently accessed folders. Um, it was just terrific. Uh, great feature. I, and again, I, I miss it. Uh, Ryan Jones asks... How do you feel about the decline of exquisite attention to detail in Apple products, specifically software, such as more inconsistencies or fewer subtle delights? Uh, That's a good question. And I definitely think he's right. I would go so far as to say it only pertains to software. To me, Apple's attention to detail in hardware is greater than ever. I think that their hardware shows is more refined, more, you know, closer to the perfection than it's ever been. Um, not to go off on a tangent, but just one example is the hinge on current MacBook Pros, the hinge between the display and and the the main body. It, it works with so little effort, yet it stays in whatever position you put it in. With you can get it exactly at the angle you want it to with less effort. The hinge even looks good. It's almost like it's not there. You hardly even see anything. It looks good. It feels good. It is super reliable. Um, it's just exquisite attention to detail. Um, say what you want about the new keyboard, but the fact that it has these, this, 
you know, about the feel about whether, what do you think about the low travel, but the way that they, the keys on these butterfly switches move all at once up and down is such a, it's so nice. And it really is something that when I go back to my old keyboard, it really does feel a little junky. Uh, the, The hardware attention to detail is terrific. And, you know, I could go on and on about the hardware of the iPhone, um, which is just terrific. The software, definitely. There's no doubt in my mind that there is less uh, attention to detail in Apple software than in the old days. In the old days, and I would say especially like in the classic Mac era, um, it was very hard to find any user interface mistakes in Apple's own software. Um, it, It was, you know, just in terms of just little details. There's, there's things now, and it's been this way in Mac OS 10 forever. I forget exactly where, um, I think, uh, let's see if I can find it here. There's things in system preferences where there's, there's a, like a little sheet that comes down in system preferences where there's an okay and cancel button and the okay button, rather than being the same width as the cancel button, it's only wide enough for the word. Okay which is wrong. It's, it's clearly a, 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 a user interface mistake. It's, you know, wrong according to the HIG and it's wrong according to just my native UI uh, instincts. I can't believe that Apple employs somebody who would make such a mistake while laying out a dialogue box. And furthermore, I cannot believe even more that even given the existence of some engineer who isn't aware of that UI convention that the, you know, an okay and a cancel button should be the same width, even if the word okay has to float in a lot of, you know, horizontal white space. Um, I, I, I can't believe that it got approved and furthermore can't approve, can't believe that it's been there for years and Apple still hasn't fixed it. Um, there's all sorts of little things like that in Mac OS 10. Uh, you know, it is what it is, but, uh, I just feel like, and I think part of it is just that Apple has had to, uh, you know, they've expanded and they have so many engineers that they can't only hire engineers who, who are familiar forward and backward with every single UI convention of the Mac. Uh, uh, I do find it a little depressing. Uh, uh let's keep going here. Next question. Got to wrap this up soon. I'm running out of steam. It's it's surprisingly hard to do this without a guest. Uh, let's see here. Uh, do I think touch will ever come to the Mac? This is a question from Jamie Halmick. Um, not like the touch bar, but real touch interaction on the screen. Conversely, do you think mouse support will ever come to the iPad? Uh, a couple other people asked about this touch support for Mac OS, just a matter of time, never going to happen. Walford East wrote, um, I certainly think it never should come to the Mac. I really do believe I, I firmly believe, uh, the Apple party line on touchscreen Macs that the Mac is designed fundamentally designed from a user interface perspective to be used with your hands on a desk or table, palms down on a keyboard on a mouse, on a trackpad, and that ergonomically reaching up and touching a screen is suboptimal. And that the Mac has user interface controls, uh, you know, uh, 
everything from the red, yellow, green buttons uh, to the menu bar, to the way menu bar items are arranged, to how small items in the dock can get when you're running a bunch of applications. They have all sorts of controls throughout the UI. Just think about the the main palette in Photoshop and apps like Photoshop, how, how small the buttons are. With a precision pointer using a trackpad or mouse, you can pack controls that are very small and close to each other, and they remain totally functional. Uh, and on a touch screen, they need to be bigger and further apart to accommodate the fact that uh, your finger touching a screen is imprecise. And uh, so the Mac UI as it is, it, things are too close, too small to be touch friendly. And if if Apple were to issue touchscreen Macs and uh, and an edict that everything should be redesigned to be touch friendly, then you'd be wasting all this screen real estate when you do use a mouse and trackpad. Uh, I really think it's a bad idea. I really do, uh, and I don't think it's ever going to come. Would I be shocked if it did come? I don't know because people seem to be clamoring for it, but I think that they're wrong, and I think Apple sh- should and will stick to its guns. I really don't think a touchscreen Mac is a good idea. Um, when, uh, let's see here. Next question. I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, in these questions. Oh, here's a good one. Ryan Humphrey asks, if you were starting a business today where long-term success was going to be dependent on heavily investing in either Apple or Microsoft's commitment to desktop slash professional hardware, would you be comfortable locking yourself into Apple? Absolutely. I don't think there's any reason to doubt Apple's commitment to the Mac as a platform going forward. I think these two statements can both be true. Apple is as committed to the Mac as you could want the company to be today. And Apple is primarily the the primary focus of the company. The single most important product is the iPhone. I think both of those things can be true that yes, the iPhone is Apple's most important product. It's the most successful. The one with the most users generates by far the most money and therefore justifies being the company's prime focus of attention, but that the company remains totally committed to the Mac. I think both of those things can be true and are true. Uh, NBA asks, um, same question asked on ATP this week. When do you expect to see the first ARM Mac? Uh, it's sort of a repeat question. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to say 2020. And if not 2020, 2021 at the latest. Uh, uh, P. Krishna asks, which keyboard are you going to use if your Apple Extended Keyboard 2 broke? Uh, I would just take out one of my mint condition unopened Apple Extended Keyboard 2s that I have in storage and use one of those if my current one broke. Um <laughs> But I guess that's sort of a non-answer. I think what you're really asking is what if at a technical level, uh, the, the ADBD USB adapter I used to, to do it stopped working with Mac OS X. I guess I would buy some sort of mechanical keyboard. I'd probably talk to Jason Snell uh, and see. I've still never found a mechanical keyboard that I would be satisfied with. But uh, I'm sure I could find something that I would like better than anything else. Uh, Phil Swenson asks, heard anything about the Apple monitor promised last year? Seems like a reasonably priced for Apple, at least monitor with more ports would migrate, mitigate port issues. And no one wants the LG. Uh, I, I haven't heard anything. I just presume, and I think this is pretty obvious that whenever Apple's, the Mac pro is ready to, the new Mac pro is ready to come out. It will debut alongside the Apple branded 5k or perhaps even 8k monitor um 
that Apple talked about last year. And I would certainly hope that it includes a bunch of uh, ports so that people with like a MacBook Pro who plug into the new monitor uh, could get things like uh, uh, extra USB-A ports and stuff like that. Um, but I haven't heard anything about it and, and presume it won't come before and won't come after it'll cut debut alongside the new Mac pro Richard Martin asks, uh, would a MacBook with a massive glass keyboard touchpad slash Apple pencil abstracted interface area in lieu of the current keyboard touchpad area be a good product? I'm going to say, no, it would be a terrible product. Absolutely terrible to me. And, and, you know, it, it runs into this with the, um, with these low travel keys and with the particularly with the inverted, the lack of an inverted uh, arrow key arrangement, in, inverted T arrow key arrangement, uh, which Marco and I talked about last week. Um, it's, it would be terrible because the thing about it, it, it's not even what it would be like once you look at the key and get your fingers on, you know, it, let's just say it would be like an iPad, right? Like you have an iPad keyboard on a glass surface of the top of the, where, where the hardware keyboard on a MacBook is now put aside what it would be like to actually type on that keyboard. Once your fingers are in the right place, which I think, you know, clearly would be inferior you know, no travel keys, even with some sort of haptic feedback um, along the lines of the way that the current trackpads, you know, don't really click, but have haptic feedback instead. Uh, Put aside what that would be like typing, which I think would be inferior. But the big problem is that you have to look to do it. Like the whole, one of the huge advantages that, that, that a hardware keyboard on a laptop has that's irreplaceable is the fact that you can get your fingers, you get your hands in the right place simply by touch alone. And there is absolutely nothing that a glass keyboard could do to, to replicate that. Uh, I guess in theory, they could put little nubbins where the J and F keys are on the glass and there'd be permanent nubbins on the glass and you could kind of get your fingers in the right space, but I don't see, I just don't see how it could ever be good. I, I think it would be terrible, uh, just a terrible product. I, I think so much of the appeal of, of uh, who knows how many times a day, like in a full day of work on a MacBook or a laptop of any kind, how many times a day does an experienced user put their hands on the keyboard and get their, you know, it, which also puts your thumb in, in a position to use the trackpad without looking. Uh, hundreds, maybe, I mean, just hundreds of times a day and, and to have to look every single time would be such an enormous step backward. I think it would be a disaster. So hopefully Apple has no plans to do that. Um, and I say hopeful because, you know, uh, Apple's, uh, you know, as I've said, MacBooks get thinner and thinner as years go on and the keyboards get thinner and thinner along with them. And the ultimate in keyboard thinness would be a keyboard that has no travel whatsoever. So hopefully that's not on their radar because I think it would be a a terrible step backward that they'd never recover from or that the experience would never recover from at least. Um, A related question from St. Chris, who I think had a question earlier. Do you wish Apple would move the quote tactile nubs from the index fingers back to the middle fingers on the home row of their keyboards. Now, for those of you who don't remember, now think about this on a, on a U.S. QWERTY keyboard. He's talking about these the the little things on the F and J keys, the ones that you put your index finger on. There's little, uh, you know, tactile nubs, whatever you want to call them. 
uh, back in the day, including on my beloved Apple Extended Keyboard 2, Apple Keyboard put those nubbins on the middle finger keys, which in the U.S. would be the D and K keys. And I have to admit, I prefer that. I don't know why. I, I don't really think there's any logic to it. I don't know how much variation there was between various computer manufacturers back in the 80s. Um, but Apple, like the Apple Extended, or the Apple IIs, I say, had those nubbins on the D and K key, and then early Mac keyboards stuck with the Apple II design of putting them on the index finger. I can't justify it rationally other than that it just always has felt right to me. And I don't think it's just because I my first computers that I used were Apple's. I think that to me there is something intuitive about the fact that your longest finger, your middle finger, is the one that, that reaches the keyboard first and therefore finds those nubbins. So me personally, I do wish that Apple would move them back to the middle finger, but I think that that ship has sailed. The rest of the end, you know, Apple has used this, you know, moved them to the index fingers at least 20 years ago, all right, 20, 25 years ago. The whole, everybody, every keyboard I've seen for 20, 20 some years has them on the F and J key. So I don't think Apple could move this without seeming like they'd lost their corporate mind. Um, but for me personally, do I wish that I could, for example, a, a custom order, a, you know, a, if I if I custom order a MacBook and as a preference could get the nubbins on the D and K keys, I would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, I really do like that. I, that's, I thought this was a pretty interesting question. Um, all right, last Mac question, and I guess it's going to be the last question of the episode. Um what is a voice or perspective about tech that Apple isn't listening to that could turn into a major problem? Examples, but not my answer. India, where Apple is sort of uh, missing the boat on, on uh, uh, mobile. Gamers, teenagers, artists, iOS-only people, etc. This is a question from Jason Becker. I am going to say that the single... I don't think that Apple's missing or isn't listening to... Uh, so maybe I'm not answering the question. Um, but I think the biggest question, the biggest problem that Apple faces that might really be a problem is the growing, uh, the, the growing rise of non-native web-based apps. These things that are based on Electron and stuff like that, that don't use native, um, that, you know, and it's a Mac specific problem. It's not an iOS problem, at least not yet. Although it might be for the iPad as time goes on. Um, the only reason the Mac can justify its existence is the fact that Mac software, for some people, is vastly superior to anything else. It's the superiority of Mac software that justifies the existence of the Mac alongside Windows and whatever else you could use on a desktop computer. And as it. it it's never, I don't think we've ever seen a case that, you know, back in the day with Java, there were cross-platform apps and, and there's always, you know, there was flash and there's also always been cross-platform solutions, but none of them have ever really taken off in the way that like these electron type things have. And they're, they're a terrible B they're no better on the Mac than they are on any other platform. So if all you use are electron based apps, there's really no, just, there's no, there's no reason for you to be allegiant, you know, have any allegiance to the Mac. It doesn't really matter what, what you use. Um, I think it's a problem. I, I think Apple sees it as a problem and that's partly why they're going with this marzipan thing where if companies aren't going to do the work of doing a first class native Mac client, but they you know, 
are willing, they do want to have a quote unquote Mac app. It would be better if they used their iOS app code base to get something running on the Mac, even if it's not optimal, than it would be to shoehorn a stupid web app into a web app shell like Electron. Um, but I feel like that's a concession to the point that the, the true solution for most of these apps would be to just do a real, real Mac app. Um, and I, you know, I think it's a bit of a problem. All right. That's it for the Mac questions. There's a whole bunch of other topics. I guess I'll have to do another one of these shows. Hopefully people like this. I don't know how interesting it is. Um, uh, I want to thank the two sponsors for this episode, Squarespace and Casper. And I want to thank everybody out there who sent these questions in. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I can't believe that I only got through two out of six categories.